The title of tonight's message is Praying for Your Governmental Leaders. Praying for Your Governmental Leaders. Whatever government you and I might be under, we're called in the Word of God to pray for them. I often will myself think of governments around the world in which someone I'm sure would be challenged to pray for, given the recklessness of such governments. But we are called in God's Word to pray for governmental leaders. And if you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Before we look at our psalm tonight, which will be the main text from which we preach, I want you to see in 1 Timothy chapter 2 what the Bible calls us to do to pray for our leaders. And I think in 1 Timothy 2, you're talking mainly about the specifics and the directions and the order of service for uh, corporate worship. And we're called upon in 1 Timothy 2 as one aspect of that corporate worship uh, to pray for our governmental leaders. Look at 1 Timothy 2 beginning in verse 1. First of all then, the Apostle Paul says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, and then notice verse 2, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So we're called upon to pray for those who are in authority over us. And as I said, that sometimes in some governments around the world would be quite the challenge. I know in our own country, um, we might not even often think about the challenge of praying for our government. Uh, We might be challenged in a completely different way than other countries around the world in which they might have totalitarian regimes or fascist regimes or uh, communistic regimes. Uh, We don't have that in our country. Uh, We find it difficult, I think, sometimes even to fulfill our civic duty uh, by being a juror. I have jury duty tomorrow. And that may be the uh, thing that we might often get most upset by. And, uh, of course, that's a small price to pay for being a part of our civil government and the duties thereof. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 13, because there it even explains further about how you should submit to and to honor the governments that are over you, and it includes those that are not governments that are often good. Romans chapter 13, verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, 
and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, referring to the government now, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. And then, verse 6, in quite startling terms, says, For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So these are a couple of New Testament passages that tell us in plain terms that we are to subject ourselves and to pray for the government that is over us. And that was true also of ancient Israel. They were called upon repeatedly to pray for those who were in authority over them, including, of course, their king. So now, if you will, turn over in your Bibles to Psalm 72. Psalm 72. This is a context that's talking about praying for your king, praying for your governmental leader, praying for your president, we might say, praying for those leaders over you and the government in which God has placed you. And Psalm 72 is certainly talking about that. Now, you'll find as we go along, it's talking about far more than that, but it is talking at least about that. Psalm 72 is the last book in book two in the series of five books of the 150 psalms in Israel's Psalter. You didn't know that? 150 psalms are in Israel's Psalter, and they're divided up into five different books. Not necessarily five different categories, but five different books. Now, it is categorical in some ways, but of course, you'd have to work hard at finding out what categories those are, but we say they are five books because you can actually see, for instance, the little superscription right above Psalm 73 as Psalm 72 comes to a close, and it says in verse 20, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended, and then you might find in your Bibles that phrase just before Psalm 73 begins, book three, book three. So you can tell we've come to the end of book two in the Psalms. And notice what it says in the title of Psalm 72. It says, of Solomon. Of Solomon. Solomon, of course, is David's son from Bathsheba. And we suppose that since this is the last Psalm of book two of the Psalter of Israel, it makes sense that with the end of David's Psalms of both book one and 
and now of book two, it seems that very naturally that Solomon's name would appear because David is apparently coming to nearing the end of his reign and Solomon will be taking over for him. So you can see that. The, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are now ended. That's what it says uh, at the end of this psalm. And because of that, and even as I mentioned last time, Psalm 71 and Psalm 72 um, are psalms that are very tightly worn together, and uh, even Psalm 70. You, you might even make the case that Psalm 70 and Psalm 71 were one psalm in the beginning, and then Psalm 72 completes the end of this particular second book of the Psalms, and they are tightly bound with both David's uh, name in Psalm 70 and now in his son Solomon's name in Psalm 72. So we presume, because of what Psalm 71 says about the psalmist, probably David, we presume it to be David, that he is now old and he is giving way to his son Solomon as king of Israel, and a new voice is pinning one of these psalms. Uh, We see in the Psalter that there are two psalms that are ascribed to Solomon, this one and another. And so Solomon appears here by his name. It could mean of Solomon or it might be by Solomon, but nevertheless, we think that Solomon is the author of this particular psalm. So what is said by or about Solomon here in Psalm 72? Well, this is going to be very important in the history of Israel. Very, very important. And it is a psalm, Psalm 72, of great transitionary importance. Great transitionary importance. You would think that much prayer is being offered by the people of God in this transitionary time. Whenever there is a new leader, there is both joy at times and then also great uneasiness. What's the government going to be like? What's the new administration going to take us through? What is going to be for us a good day or a bad day, a good season or a bad season, a triumphant season or a challenging season? And this is where we find ourselves in the Psalms. The people of God are looking toward a new king and... Psalm 72, I think, could be said to be a lengthy and marvelous and powerful affirmation of how God uses human kings in our lives to providentially bring about His own will and purpose for mankind. And yet, it's sometimes a very scary proposition. If you want to put it another way, Psalm 72 is an opportunity for you and for me to pray for our governmental leaders to be all that God has designed a righteous ruler to be. This is a great opportunity. We ourselves are coming into a new election cycle for the highest offices in our land. And we are going to be seeing in the next several months all kinds of ads discussions, and to put even layers on that, uh, there is great unrest in the U.S. House of Representatives and the United States Senate. There's going to be a lot of battling going on. There's going to be a lot of conflict. 
And this is a time for all of us, especially ourselves as Christians, to be praying fervently for those who are governmental leaders over us. So in light of that, and uh, if you will, follow along as I read Psalm 72, Psalm 72 of Solomon, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life. And precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Now, I think this is quite incredible. It's maybe unlike all the other psalms in this altar. There's so much to say about this psalm. But I guess maybe our question would be this. How would we outline this great psalm? How would we break it down and look to it carefully? Well, if you see it as I do, there seems to be a sort of back and forth nature to it, with each section alternating between two realities, prayer and hope. Prayer and hope. Prayer and and hope. It it serves, I think, to remind us again and again and again about our own need for continual prayers and continual hope 
for whoever our king is and whenever he may assume the throne and possibly, as this psalm says it, rule forever. That hint is there, and we're going to talk much about that. But if you're talking about a human king, if you're talking about a human ruler, if you're talking about the governments of this world and the ones that you and I find ourselves in, local, national, of course, then what do we do? Well, if you read this psalm carefully and if you read it over and over and over again, you find these two realities, prayer and hope, prayer and hope, prayer and hope. And so that's the way I want to outline it. I want to talk about prayer and hope, prayer and hope, prayer and hope, three times a piece. Because I think that's what's going on in this psalm, and so I'll do it this way. Number one, number one, prayer for the great king's rule. Prayer for the great king's rule. Look at verse 1, Psalm 72.1. Here's a prayer now. And here's the prayer that begins the psalm, and here's how you and I ought to be praying for our own government like this particular psalm commands us to do. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. Now, if this is Solomon and David is giving way to his son, The people are praying this way. They want Solomon to receive from God himself, from Yahweh, justice and righteousness. You see that? It's very, very clear. This is a prayer request. Give the king your justice, O God. Whatever justice is, however God himself defines justice, give that to the king. That's the way we want ourselves to be governed by and with justice. And not just justice, but righteousness. And give your righteousness, O God. This is a prayer to Yahweh. And they're praying that Solomon, we trust, is being invoked through prayer for God to give him God's own justice And righteousness. For what purpose? So that he may rule in the right way. Now, I think that's that's a wonderful first prayer for our own government. Pray that they would rule in justice and righteousness. Now, that's a simple prayer. But convictingly, how often do you and I pray for that very thing? I don't find myself every day thinking that thought, let alone praying for our local leaders, our national leaders, even the great leaders of the world. But this is what Israel is praying. This is maybe even what Solomon himself is praying for. You remember in 1 Kings, he prayed for wisdom and God gave him wisdom And now maybe this is an application of that. Give me as the king of Israel toward your people, God, the kind of justice and righteousness so that my ruling on earth is actually an extension of your rule in heaven. So that's a great prayer. And notice in verses 2, 3, and 4, 
hope. We could call it hope for the great king's reign. Not just prayer for the great king's rule, but now a sense of hope and expectation for the great king's reign. Look at verses 2, 3, and 4. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. The he there, and by the way, one of the keys on this psalm is that the he's and the his pronouns are talking about the human king. When it says you or your, like in verse 1, give the king your justice, O God, that's referring to God the Father, Yahweh God. So the king is being referred to in verse 2. May he, the king, judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. In other words, that's our hope. That's our hope. It's both our prayer and our hope that that's exactly what he will do. You say, well, it's Solomon. Of course he should do that. I mean, he's, he's an Israelite. He, he, he wants justice. He wants righteousness. Well, have you ever read about the history of the kings of Israel? Most of them were very evil. And they weren't ruling and reigning like that. No wonder they prayed for things like that. No wonder there was, that was the hope of the human heart. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. Now that strikes me as I'm sure it does you. Mountains don't prosper and hills don't live in righteousness, do they? Well, it's a personification. Uh, What it's saying is, if if the human king under God's rule, God's reign, is doing what he must do, what he should do, what he can do in righteous and just reigning, then perhaps God will also bless the mountains and the hills. God will give us prosperity. You see that word there in verse 3? Let the mountains bear prosperity. In other words, uh, we, need, uh, we need wood for our, our livelihood. We need the hills to be in righteousness. We, we need hills to prosper and mountains to prosper. So we, we hope that the king will give that to us. And then verse 4. May he, that is the king again, may he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. In other words, deal with evildoers, just like Romans 13 says. You remember Romans 13 that we read earlier? It said that the government is instituted by God, placed there by God, as ministers of God. Now, when's the last time you thought about our government as ministers? Not, not, a, not a few times have I wondered, are they ministers of God? They seem to be doing the exact opposite of what God's commanding them to do. But God's in control of it all. And he's saying, these are ministers of God. This is what your government should be. This is what they need to be. And this is what they're hoping Solomon will be, that he's a defender of the poor of the land, that he's a deliverance giver to the children of the needy, and that he crushes the oppressors who are actually all about extorting from the poor and the needy. So they're hoping that Solomon will be a godly leader He'll be a great king, and his reign will be one of righteousness and justice. And then notice, from verses 5 
to 11, he goes right back to prayer. So prayer, hope, and now another prayer. And here it is. Verse 5, may they, that is the people, through the reign of that human king, Solomon himself, may they fear you. That's the you of God the Father, Yahweh. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. Now, it could be, and you see a little translation note there, it may mean, may they fear you, the king, that is, may they give you honor, uh, may they fear you in the sense of reverence because you are ruling and reigning in a righteous way. But perhaps it's something like this, may they fear you, God, that is the people, while this righteous reigning is going on, while it's occurring. And for how long? While the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. Forever. Forever. Notice the extent of that. Throughout all generations. To the end of the world. Verse 6. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass. Like showers that water the earth. Giving giving life. Giving health. It's a, it's a life-giving seed that grows because the water is so plentiful. It falls on the earth. It showers and waters the earth. Verse 7, in his days, in the king's days, where God is feared, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. Now, to me, that's a long time. Till the moon be no more? As long as the moon, as long as the moon exists, well, that's a prayer. That's a prayer. That's what we ought to be hoping. That's, that's what I call prayer for the great king's representation. Prayer for the great king's representation. Why? Why do I use the word rep- representation? Because he's representing God himself. That's what the king is doing. You want prayer for the great king's rule, and you want the hope of the great king's reign, that he'll be having a righteous reign, and you go right back to prayer, and in verses 5 to 11, you want God, through the king, through Solomon, to be rightly represented, to be the rightly representative of God. And he doesn't stop there in verse 7. Notice verse 8. May he have dominion from sea to sea. Our king. And from the river to the ends of the earth. That may be the river Euphrates. You see that in the marginal note. But perhaps because this is talking about such a grandiose reign, such a long-standing reign, almost like an eternal reign of God, R.E. IGN. This is talking about maybe all rivers. And from the river to the ends of the earth, from the great rivers and the small rivers and all the mountains and all the hills that that have dominion from sea to sea. Verse 9, may desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. In other words, he's vanquished them all because God's in charge and he's the representative of God himself. Verse 10, may the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. In other words, he's vanquished all the enemies of God, and they're now having to come and bring him tribute. 
They, they owe him their lives because he's vanquished them, but he hasn't killed them altogether. And so they come and they pay tribute to the one who has vanquished them as their new leader. And then notice this, may the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. Maybe this is a reference to the extent of his reign. Sheba might be present-day Yemen, and Seba might be one of the African countries of today. So the extent of this is huge. As far as the known world at the time, it just about covers everything, and they're all to bring tribute and gifts. Verse 11, may all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. Why? Because this particular king, Solomon himself, is representing Yahweh in person. I'm doing his bidding. Anybody who comes to attack us, we will thwart all foes, and they will bring tribute to us. They will bow down, according to verse 9. They, they, will, be, they will be licking the dust. They'll be vanquished because our God is with us. This is, a, this is another prayer. We ought to be praying for our God to vanquish all of his enemies. We ought to be praying for the great king's representation. We ought to be saying, Lord, give us someone who could lead our land like you would lead our land with righteousness and justice. What a prayer. What a prayer. And then it goes cycling right back to hope, hope for the great king's redemption. Look at verses 12, 13, and 14. For he, speaking of the king again, for he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. Our king, the king we're praying about and we're hoping in, he has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. And verse 14, from oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Isn't that tender? I mean, the, the verses just before it, war, vanquishing, foes, tribute. I mean, we're talking about all-out war, and it's bloody, and it's dirty, and it's sad, and there's killing and maiming. And now, what about the home front? What about our own country? What about the people who have no food? What about the needy? Somebody who has no helper, the poor, having pity on the weak and the needy. What about them? And you know, those are polarities that are often issues within our government. Someone will say, what about our national defense? Are we going to be able to defend ourselves? And what if we're attacked uh, here or in the rear flank? Uh, how are we going to build up our military so that we have a strong presence, not just here but around the world? And everybody's focusing on all of the military prowess and presence, and we have to use our money wisely so that we can build uh, the kinds of infrastructure militarily so that we are able to defend ourselves upon attack 
And you'll have those who are championing those things. And then somebody comes along and says, yes, but what about our backyard? What about the poor? What about the needy? What about the homeless? What about the poor? What about those who are extorting them while we're trying to build up our military? So then you'll have advocates for the poor and the needy and say, "Uh, we're doing this on this side, but what about this side? Well, guess what? This particular king, he takes care of both. That's our hope, right? You, you look at our necessary defense and you look at our people's needs. And I love that last phrase of verse 14. Precious is their blood in his sight. Wow, this is, this is a great hope. And I use the word redemption because verse 14 does. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life. He delivers them. He takes care of them. He figures out ways as a, as a king, as a president, as a leader to, to have both a strong military and a strong home life. He, he's no small leader. He's powerful. And yet he's humble. He's mighty. But he also cares for the lowly. What a, what a hope for, for a great king like that. And then prayer, hope, prayer, hope, and now back to prayer. Prayer for the great king's renown. Look at verses 15 to 17. Long may he live. Can you see the crowds in the streets? Can you see them with the banners? Long may he live. I mean, that's what I want to do if I'm serving a king like that who takes care of our military, our protection, but he's also caring for the needy and the powerless. Boy, this is a leader you can get behind. This is a leader you can follow. I'd be one of those uh, waving that banner saying, long may he live. Let nobody do anything to him. He's got to stay in office, and he's got to stay in office forever. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him, how long? Continually, it says. And blessings invoked for him all the day. We're praying for him continually. That means from the first time he stepped in office until he leaves office, and we hope he never leaves, and we're also praying blessings upon him that are going to be invoked for him all the day. Why? Because he's that valuable to us. He's that needy for us as our king. Verse 16, may there be an abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. May it it be that we have timber and wood with which to build things. May we have an abundance of grain in the land. May there be so much grain because of his righteous ruling, because of his justice throughout the land, that there's grain and you look on the mountains and it's just flowing in the breeze because it's so abundant. And, verse 16, may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. People are happy. They're safe, they're secure, their needs are met. May the cities under the rule and reign of this great king, may they flourish. 
because of his great renown. I mean, he's got a He's got a great rule and a great reign and a great representation and a great redemption and a great renown. Nobody's like our king. He's the great king. May he he live forever. Verse 17, may his name endure forever. His name, that means all that he is, all that, that his name invokes, his character, his honor, his attributes May his name endure forever. His fame, his renown continue as long as the sun. I'd say that's a long time. You remember the reference to the moon earlier? So may the, may the rule of our great king happen as long as the moon is there. And now may his name and his fame continue as long as the sun is there. May people be blessed in him All nations call him blessed. Now, it's not just what we think about our king in our territory, in our state, in our country, in our land, but may he have such a reputation of fairness and justice and equity and compassion so that all the nations of the earth call him blessed. You're going to have a great king if all the nations of the earth are going to say, we can't outdo that king. We wish we lived in that country because he's so good at what he does. That's a great great prayer. And finally, here's hope. Hope for the great king's right. His, His right to rule and reign. Look at verses 18, 19, and 20. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. This is like a benediction, folks. This is like a benediction. After Solomon has said all of these things, or if this is about Solomon, and after all of these things have been said, here's the benediction. Here's the the, the end of all things. Here's what you say again with your, your hope, with hope everlasting. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, because you know that if there's any king like that, it's only because God put him there. If there's ever a king that's been described like Psalm 72 describes him, and if there is, I don't know who he is. I've never seen that even in the history of Israel. But but if that's what they're praying for, and if that's what they're hoping for, then it's only going to happen if the Lord, the God of Israel, is the one who alone is doing it. Notice verse 18. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things, including putting kings in power and taking them out. That's what Psalm 75 says. It says, he exalts one and he puts down another. So the one that we ought to be praying to and hoping in is not even the human king ultimately, but in the king of kings and the Lord of lords because he's the one who's ultimately in charge. Verse 19, blessed be his glorious name forever. God's name, the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This is Yahweh, the God of Israel May his name be glorious forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Hope for the great king's right to be in charge. 
Now look, we've gone over an amazing account in Psalm 72 of how to pray for and hope in a godly ruler for a godly people and a godly kingdom. But I think there's a problem with all of this. I think there's a problem. Because if you and I are only thinking about Israel's human king who's either already taken office or is just about to and his name is Solomon, is he all this? <laughs> is, is Solomon pictured here? I don't think so. I do not think so. Have you read lately the history books of Israel about the person of King Solomon? It's a, I'll be charitable, it's a bit mixed. It's a bit mixed. There's some really good things. And there's some really sad things, aren't there? I, I, can't, I can't see Solomon in these pages. I, I can't see him in this psalm. I can't see him in these verses. Can you? Oh, maybe in a few verses he, he sort of bumps up against them and he, he might live out some of this for a time. But this has got to be talking about someone else. I mean, Solomon had some serious issues, we might say, at critical times and seasons of his life, issues that in no way reflected the mandates of this psalm. In fact, if you and I were to read this psalm over and over and over again, I think this psalm is talking about a king who is nearly, if not, perfect. I mean, notice the biography of who this man is. He, he far exceeds any earthly king. Far exceeds. It seems as though parts of this psalm are, are speaking so much more transcendently than in a human king like Solomon, for sure, or maybe any other ruler in Israel for that matter, including, by the way, King David himself. This is not even a picture of King David. He himself was a man of clay feet, a sinner. So I ask, to whom is this psalm ultimately referring? And just when? And how? And what is the nature of this transcendent kingdom? Who's it referring to here? Well, I think the answer to that question is for us to go back to Genesis chapter 12. And I want to, in a series of readings, and I don't apologize for this because we're going to be doing several looks in several passages of our Bibles, I want to show you who I think this is referring to. Look at Genesis chapter 12. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. I want to show you what Psalm 72 is helping us build toward, and then we'll see some other passages that I think correctly give us 
the name and the leadership of the person who's ultimately being depicted here. Look at Genesis chapter 12. Do you remember this call of Abram? Genesis 12.1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We know this as the Abrahamic covenant, right? This is that promise. This is that promise that there was a man named Abram who came out of Ur of the Chaldees and he was not Jewish because there was no Jewish nation. But he, he became one because, and we'll look at this, God said, I'm going to call upon you, command you to circumcise yourself and your males who come after you and that will be the sign of this covenant that I'm making. And here he's telling Abram, I will bless you and I will make of you a great nation so great that you will be a blessing to the entire world. And if that weren't enough, look at Genesis 15. Genesis 15 Here it is. Here's that covenant. Chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, verse 4, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, Eliezer of Damascus, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And then that famous verse, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And the Lord goes on, verse 7, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your father's peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is, this is a covenant that God was making with Abram 
that he would bless him and make him a great nation. And by the way, if you read the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 6, you find out that what this was called was the cutting of a covenant. And that was an Old Testament custom where two men would make an agreement and they would cut these animals in half and they would lay them to their sides and they would walk through the flaming torch and it was a covenant. It's like what you and I would do if we were to cut each other's arms and the blood and we'd mingle them together and say, we've cut a covenant together. But notice, in Hebrews chapter 6, it says that God put Abram to sleep. Why? Because God knew he couldn't trust Abram. Because Abram was a man and he was a sinner. So the Bible says in Hebrews 6, what God did was he put him out with some kind of divine anesthetic. And it says, God walked through those animals with he and himself. Because it says, because God could swear by no one greater than himself. So God made the covenant with Abraham, but put him asleep so God would ensure that the covenant would always be kept. This is, this is, the, this is the inviolable covenant of God. This, this hints at what's happening in Psalm 72. Look at Genesis 17. Look at Genesis 17. That's the circumcision. He says in verse 9, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. This is a, this is a further marking out of the people of God. It's a covenant forever. Look at Genesis 22. Genesis 22. This is that famous story, of course, of God commanding Abram, now Abraham, Avraham. After these things, Genesis 22.1, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham called his name, his, his new name, what God had given him, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac. By the way, that very phrase, your only son, that's what we read already, your only son, whom you love, And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And by the way, do you understand that Mount Moriah is precisely the location right now, today, this very moment, of the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem? That mountain that that Dome of the Rock is located on, that's Mount Moriah. That's where this took place. So Abraham rose early in the morning saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him 
On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. By the way, God will provide. That's where we get the word providence. God is a providential God. He is the God of providence. So they went, both of them, together. And when they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Now he had a son in his old age. God miraculously allowed Sarai to birth this boy and now God is saying, kill him, sacrifice him on the altar to me. But notice verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son, in the place of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. It's also the word to see. The Lord will see. The Lord Lord sees what you and I don't see. He can provide what we can't see. On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now, now what what is all this? I mean, and why am I bringing it up? And what does this have to do with Psalm 72? Here's the answer. God had a plan, and it included taking Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and he brought Abraham into being a nation we call Israel, and he miraculously created a son, Isaac, who almost died on Mount Moriah. But then there was a a ram in the thicket a distance away that God had provided so that a sacrifice would indeed take place in the stead of Isaac, on behalf of Isaac, and that Abraham believed God. And why did he believe God? Because he trusted the promises of God that God said, I'm going to build a nation out of your very loins. Do you believe me? And when Abraham said, yes, I believe you. He was obedient to what God had called him. In fact, the great hall of faith in Hebrews 11 said that Abraham believed, you read it, Hebrews 11, he believed that even if he had brought the knife all the way down into the very heart of his son Isaac, that he believed that God would raise him from the dead. That's how much he believed. And it was only the staying hand of God that didn't allow that knife blade to go fully into Isaac's heart. So what was God doing? What's what's all the symbolism? What's all the point? The point is this, that ram in that thicket 
is a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ who is the only one qualified to be the biography of Psalm 72. That's who's in Psalm 72. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. You know how I know that? Look in your Bibles at 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel. This is getting into the history of Israel. And we're skipping over a lot, but this is... This is critical. This is 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is, this is the great chapter in which God now is talking not to Abraham but to David. And this is what he says about David's line, David's people. 2 Samuel 7, look at verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David. This is God through, the Nathan, through Nathan the prophet saying to David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, just like Abram was taken from Ur of the Chaldeans, right? I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince or leader over my people Israel. Abram started Israel in the human sense. David's now the leader of Israel. And here's what he says. Verse 9, and I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name. That sounds a lot like what he promised Abram, right? I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house, house of Israel. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. Notice that. Abram, from your loins, now David, from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Now, who is that? David might have thought, well, it's, it's Solomon. It's Solomon. And that's the one who's taking over my reign. Maybe God's going to raise up Solomon now to be this son who's establishing God's kingdom forever. Verse 13, sounds like Solomon, and he shall build a house for my name. Remember, David couldn't build the, the temple because he was a man of blood and that Solomon, his son, was going to be said by God to build the temple. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And you know, in Psalm 72, it keeps talking about forever and until the moon is no more, until the sun is no more. Well, that can't be Solomon because he died. can't be him. Verse 14, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Not hard to figure out who that is. Not hard to figure that out. When he commits iniquity, you say, oh, well, that's not the Lord Jesus. That's true. This is son, son Israel. This is, this is all of the sons of Israel as though they were one son. And, and when the nation of Israel commits iniquity, I will discipline them with the rod of men. In other words, I will... I will See them scattered throughout the world in bondage, in, in, in Babylon, with Assyria, 
with other nations, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, that is Israel, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. You say, well, all this established forever language, forever language, forever language... It it doesn't seem real. It doesn't seem like it is going to be forever because David died. And and, and Solomon, he reigned, and, and then he died. And the sons of Israel, the whole lot of them, they weren't qualified. There was not one qualified king or leader in Israel to have a throne that will be established forever. And you look over in 2 Samuel 23. 2 Samuel 23, and you you see David's last words, it says. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God. This sounds a lot like Psalm 72, doesn't it? He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. That sounds like Psalm 72, doesn't it? I mean, when there's a righteous ruler and he's reigning and he's doing what God commands him to do and he's God's representative on the earth, good things happen. Prosperity, sun shining forth, rain making grass to spout from the earth. And he says in verse 5, For does not my house stand so with God, David's house? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and secure. So, So when is this kingdom going to be established forever and ever and ever. As long as the moon shines and the sun shines, when is this and where is this? I tell you. Read your New Testament. It's right there. The references to Jesus, it's it's remarkable. It's absolutely remarkable. Turn to Matthew chapter 1. Here's what I want you to do. We don't have time tonight, but Matthew chapter 1. With all that I've just said and with Psalm 72 in your mind and with this kingdom being established by God forever and ever through David's line, some kind of David's greater son, it's not Solomon, whoever this may be, we're looking for him. Israel says we're looking for our Messiah. Hopefully he will come. When will he come? Has he come? And Matthew chapter 1 says it so very clearly. Chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. There it is. Here he is. And you see all these names here? We don't have time to read all of these names. But this is, this is the virtual distilled history of Israel. Down to verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And then it goes right into the birth. Right into the birth of Christ. And then you look over at Matthew chapter 3, and John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness, and he was the voice 
Isaiah the prophet says, crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Make his paths straight. Who's he referring to? What's going on? Matthew chapter 4. Jesus and his ministry. Verse 12, now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. You remember when David said in that 2 Samuel 23 passage, his last words, the morning light has dawned. This is Christ. This is Jesus. This is who this is. Look at Matthew 12. Matthew 12. This is, this is, this is the Lord. Jesus, according to the prophet Isaiah, is being foretold like this. Matthew 12, 18, Behold, my servant, this is God speaking through Isaiah the prophet, Behold, my servant, thinking of Jesus, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Do you know that this prophecy of Isaiah is almost a carbon copy of the king that we saw in Psalm 72? He's he's mighty. He's going to proclaim justice and righteousness And he's also not going to throw away a bruised reed and quench a smoldering wick. Do you remember that? He had this love for those who were needy and poor. Do you you see it there? And we could go on. Matthew 13 and 15 and 17 and 20 and 21 and 24 and 25 and 27 and 28, all depicting this Jesus who is the only qualified Israelite to be the sinless Son of God and the King forever. And all that Psalm 72 is talking about, when it's talking about till the, till the sun is no more and until the moon is no more and that this establishment of the kingdom would be forever and ever and ever and it'll never come to an end. Folks, you cannot see that with any other human king, even in Israel, except the Lord Jesus Christ. This is who that is. And and if you're not convinced ultimately and finally, I want you to turn to Revelation 19 as we close. Revelation 19. This This is who Jesus is, and this is what he's going to do, and this is when he's going to reign, and this is what he's going to do when he reigns, and this is the ultimate king of Psalm 72. It isn't David, Solomon, anybody else, but it is the Lord. Revelation 19, 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. Now, don't miss that. Faithful and True, just like Psalm 72 is saying he's going to judge with justice 
and faithfulness, justice and righteousness. Those are synonyms. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. This is, this is God's king. This is his established kingdom forever. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is that Lord. This is that king of Psalm 72. Now you ask me, Do you think that if Solomon penned those words in Psalm 72 or they were written about him, do you think he understood that it was not him but somebody else who was to come? I think he probably did because he knew his own heart. But maybe it was his son. Maybe it was going to be another son. Maybe it was going to be another son. Maybe down the line it will be whoever that is. And you and I live on this side of the cross of Jesus Christ, and therefore we know who it is. It is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, no wonder Jesus says what he says in Revelation 22. This is is marvelous. Behold, Jesus says, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me, to repay each one for what he has done. That's the righteous, ruling, reigning King of kings and Lord of lords. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. He is the only qualified one, the the very descendant of David, of whom Psalm 72 and, frankly, the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament identifies. Hallelujah. 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 This is Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, Heavenly Father, this is clear in our minds. It's captivating. It's exhilarating. And it's also a a pause for the examination of our own hearts. Do I follow this King of kings and Lord of lords in my life? Do I ascribe to him glory forever and ever and ever? Do I do do what Psalm 72 says? Do I see this one as the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things? Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and amen.